this episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by Eating Noises. Go to dot slash to get off your on with the show tonight. <laughs> oh no. That was really good. Hello. Jason, hello everybody. You you all probably thought you lost us. Actually, probably nobody yeah. noticed. Our listenership has fallen so much that they're just going to be banned probably for this episode. Yeah. I don't even know and if he Johnny. still listens anymore. Yeah, I don't know who listens. I don't know who I can trust. But that doesn't matter because we're still going to keep making these pretty yeah. much because we don't give a heck, my dude. Okay, so I haven't seen you in, in a while for like... A, a solid chunk of time, you know. It's true. I work now during the morning. Now you're in your late teens. Yeah. How does that feel? Is that weird? So I was talking to Derek the other day. Shout out to Derek, who never listened to the show. Yeah. Um, and I had the realization that I'm closer to turning 20 than I am to turning 16. Yep. And I feel like I was 16 quite recently, and that 20 is quite far away. Yep. But it's uh, not. But it's not. And so that's a little terrifying. As as a twenty two okay. year old who's way ahead of you, yeah. the weirdest birthday I ever had was my nineteenth. Because you're almost out of your teens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by the time I was twenty, I already felt like I had already reconciled that. But up up until that point, when I turned nineteen, it was like whoa. Mm-hmm. Because when you're eighteen, even now, you're like, oh yeah, I still got you know two years of teen. Oh, yeah. But then you hit 19 and you realize that you got no time left at all. And then you, then in a, the blink of an eye, you're 22 and you've done nothing with your life. You're an embarrassment to everybody, you know? So I, just enjoy. Anyway, we can probably pour this coffee yeah. now and play the theme tune. But what I was saying, um, and just play the theme tune. I'll just... No, I'm not going to play it. Okay. No. Um, I thought you were going to play it. No. Say what you're gonna okay. Say. Well, I was gonna say that uh, <laughs> I got you. We stress out a lot as we get older and say that life is better when you're younger. But I mean, think about it. Like, I can drive. I could afford any Lego set I want. Um, now, do I buy them? No, but I could. And uh, I can basically buy as many snacks as I want. Yesterday, I was also at Bulk Barn with Derek, and he said that he felt like a kid in a candy shop, which is a expression. Um, and I said the difference is you're a kid in a candy shop who works full time and has no living expenses, and that's a very dangerous place to be. So he spent about six dollars. <laughs> also, I have something to tell you. Yeah, I'm pretty certain that I muted the master and left the metronome on. So we're gonna go back. Wait. Oh, we're no, go but back. it has sound waves. We're going to go back real quickly and just make okay. sure. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. everybody. If everything's fine, we'll be back in a second. If not, it'll be quite some time. Goodbye. Well, that hey, was tiring. Hey, everybody. Yeah. We're back. No, false alarm. Also, we're eating like banana chips and Skittles, which are literally probably the two worst foods we could be eating. Jawbreakers. For podcasting. 
I'm still so stoked Kevin told me you could do it for the 70 bucks. Shout out to Kevin in Stratford. Thanks, Kevin. You're a loyal listener and a friend of the show. Okay, so uh, welcome to the Good Ship Brothership. This is the only arts podcast that uh, covers music, uh, film, gaming, literature, and newscast uh, hurdling... By association. I'm Grant, and this is my brother kevin from stratford <laughs> i'm not kevin from stratford but i know him through the miracle of the internet play him on tv no uh that's jason what are we talking about today today we are talking about the uh what year is it the coen brothers film fargo 96? the 1996 coen brothers film fargo which then spawned the tv show and we are also talking about david bowie's uh somewhat newly released Posthumous. ep uh, no plan and it feels a little bit strange to say like David Bowie's released EP of course he did make it but he wasn't really around for the release um, which 8th is of January sad. of this year so I guess not really not uh, recent but this year yeah just will it count for our <coughs> album of the year and, like is it <coughs> bless you it was released this year or do you mean just but does an EP? EP yeah I'd say like it's a collective collective yeah. uh of songs that's hmm. released under a title, that's so fair. I mean, you wouldn't exclude a double album because it's got twice the songs. Well, that's true. Well, what do we do next? Uh, we flip the pop. Uh, I would say I don't know what you're thinking. I feel like Eyes Up would be uh, Fargo. Fargo, yeah. Hey, there, there is here, a here. There, he go. He's there's in, a certain weird logic to. He's done it before. He'll do it again. Face down. No plan by David Bowie. Uh, you want to go first or should I? Also, uh, I just want everybody to know that if I sound a little bit richer today, it's because I'm using a fountain pen Oh, to just cross off the things that I've said. <laughs> and if I sound a little bit poorer, it's because I was just in bulk bar and buying Skittles. Yeah. Okay. So. Do you want to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Um, sounds like you're going first. No plan. I've only listened to a few times before, uh, like four or five days ago. Just because, I don't know, there have been so much good music this year and I like to take time to digest music. <laughs> Hold up. You just said, because there have been so much good did I? music. You should did. I just quit the show right now forever? Yeah, you should probably just crawl out this way. So let's pretend, into the if, I want to listen to that and see if I did say that, but I'll believe you. you did. Okay, so I hadn't really gotten around to this album because this has been such a fantastic year for music um, and part of me sort of wanted to leave this music out there that David Bowie had made that I hadn't heard in terms of like new content uh, in the same way that the much beloved podcast wiretap ended a couple years ago and I still haven't listened to the last episode yeah never just because because... I might one day but because I know that it hasn't ended for me like it could just be like yeah you know on break so so in the same way it was kind of tough to listen to no plan and know that this was the last music from the legend David Bowie. Um, that said, he really didn't go out with a whimper. I think um, an inherent difficulty with releasing an EP is that they're usually regarded as B-sides from the album that are, you know, worth listening to, but they're on the EP because they couldn't make it on the album. And there's a certain knowledge when they're released that probably most of the people who listen to the album won't listen to the EP. Well, now, did you do... Any research on where the songs come from? No, I absolutely did not. This is pertinent. Uh, No Plan. I guess we should have read this first. This is the Wikipedia for No Plan. No Plan is an extended play. Compromising songs written in... Comprising. 
comprising. You said compromising. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Comprising. You said compromising. No, okay. I didn't. I'm sorry. I'm right. Comprising songs written and recorded by English musician David Bowie released posthumously on January 8th, 2017. The release coincided with what would have been Bowie's 70th birthday, almost a year after his death. No Plan compiles the original songs written for David Bowie's Broadway oh, musical okay. Lazarus, including the titular Lazarus. And just as a side note, people are saying titular way too much these just days. Say, just say the title track yeah. or Lazarus. Or even... Uh... The titular Lazarus, No Plan, Killing a Little Time, and When I Met You. The songs were first recorded by the cast of the musical as part of its official soundtrack. The recordings featured on No Plan come from the sessions for Bowie's 25th and final studio... 25 studio albums. Are you kidding me? 25th and final studio album, Black Star, with Lazarus appearing as the third track on the album. No, it's on the EP at least. It's the first, first one. No, Jason. 20 Black Star. Oh, with yes. Lazarus Sorry. That's correct. Upon release, No Plan debuted at 138 on the Billboard 200. The music video for the title track was also released in accompaniment with the EP. It was directed by whatever. Did you watch the music video? For Lazarus. Uh, no, for uh, No Plan. No Plan. This, oh, uh, they... He's talking about... Oh, sorry. He must yeah, be talking sorry. about No Plan. Yeah. yeah. This is kind of a convoluted... Have you watched the music video for No Plan? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. What did you think of it? Um, I didn't really like it. Uh, I mean, it looks gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Colors are good. Lighting now, is it, good. It was a while ago that I watched it. Is it just the static TVs in the window of the store and, like, people are walking up and looking at them and it's uh-huh. raining? And it just shows, like, the song lyrics, basically. Uh, I really didn't mind it. I thought it was functional, uh, from what I remember, and quite beautiful and had some interesting symbolism of people who are coming to see, hear, experience this new Bowie material but he himself is not there yeah i did notice that the static on the tvs um i think that that's just an interesting image and it's beautiful oh yeah it's have you seen the music video for lazarus uh a while ago as well i don't really remember it to be honest he's amazing in that music video. i'll have to watch it uh also i just like this the ep received rave reviews from music critics exclaim critic exclaim exclamation mark critic callum singerland wrote one would hope the plan for Bowie going forward would be for him to avoid falling mm-hmm. into the category of rock icon with innumerable posthumous releases. I thought of that, yeah. But thankfully for listeners, he says the music on No Plan holds up. Okay. Is he right? Let's see. So as I was saying, frequently um, EPs kind of get short shrift because people assume it will be the songs that couldn't quite make it onto the album. However, as we just read, that is not the case, and I think the tracks on No Plan could really go toe-to-toe with songs found on any album from really just anyone at all. I think it's a super compelling package of uh, really phenomenal tracks that are equal to what's on Black Star, with only really one notable flaw. Although I'm not really sure... Well, I'm actually, hang on. When I wrote this, I wasn't sure. Now I know why Lazarus was put on the EP. It really does totally match the other tracks very well. Um, and I put down here that any opportunity to hear that really just like tour de force of music is what that really is well. Lazarus? Yeah. Like, that's that could just be on every album released this year and I would be like, it improved the album. Yeah. Um, really. 
The song No Plan is really also fantastic and probably my favorite with maybe the exception of Lazarus. The instrumentation is like almost overwhelmingly good. Like that bass and the drums, like the way they blend together. No no plan. plan. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so mellow, but it's still potent and it still seems like kind of heavy, even though it's really just not. Um, that? It's maybe my favorite instrumentation on anything on this or Black Star. I'm not prepared to say that definitively, but it's right up there for sure. The band that he played with was Donnie McCaskill yeah. uh, on saxophone and uh, Ben Saunder, I think, on guitar, Mark Wheelian on drums, and at the moment, I can't remember the bassist's name, but I can picture him, uh, is like just a life-changingly yeah. good band. Like, And I totally, when I say life-changingly good, mm-hmm. like I mean my my perception of how good a small band can sound with minimal overdubs uh-huh. has actually been altered Altered after hearing them. Like, honestly, they, I feel like in a live setting, they could almost go toe to toe for just massive, expansive sound yeah. filled with like Led Zeppelin. Like, every, unbelievable. Every time I listen to No Plan, I get literally like giddy just by how good it is. I'm like, I can't believe this. Um, I really just have no ill to speak of that track. Next is Killing a Little Time. The first time, not the first time I heard it, but the first time like I really listened to it was coming home from work a few days ago. <sighs> Had the windows down, was just cranking it as I was waiting to get on the highway. And as the song came on, I was just like, what's going on? It sounds like, like jazz metal kind of thing. Um... And maybe that's not the most intelligent way to put it, but it's really just the only way I can really think of that that mm-hmm. uh, describes it. The band just goes so hard. I don't connect with the writing in that song quite as much. I don't know what it is about it, but it wasn't as uh, vivid and colorful to me. But his vocal performance I still thought was phenomenal, and his like smooth, clear voice against like that just pounding, uh, pounding drum beat was like a fantastically weird almost like almost a discord just in terms of of tone but really works super well together um lastly is when i met you it's definitely still a good track but it was by far the weakest in my opinion it was the only song that i didn't like love on it i think i just don't find it as interesting as most of the tracks he released on this or even on black star I think the writing is very good compared to almost any other artist, but compared to his recent re- releases, I just think it's a little less intriguing, a little less colorful and imaginative. Um, and overall, it's still good, but it's I would rather skip it to get to the other three tracks sometimes. All right. Um, so overall, I think it's a really emotionally charged last push and one of... Uh, one of the great releases this year, despite the fact that it's an EP. The only thing that I do think holds it back somewhat is I didn't find there was a super coherent through line of subject matter between all of them, which is okay. But Blackstar having like his story up to his death and then a large portion of it being about his death was really kind of unbeatable. And I think maybe it's just because it's following up that that I would say that it has kind of a weak narrative path. Okay. Um, 
But overall, I think that this is just a fantastic last sight of Bowie's genius. And yeah, I would give it like a 9 out of 10 at least. All right. Well, uh, just to piggyback off the through line thing that you said, I listened for a narrative uh, for a long time. And uh, it makes sense until you get to killing a little time. Yeah. Because Lazarus is about, I think, like him dying, like yeah. being the act of dying, like the physical and spiritual, emotional, whatever, act of dying. And uh, then no plan is very much the afterlife, right? Mm-hmm. And then killing a little time would always come in and throw a wrench in the plan with this kind of like rage-fueled, um, really angry song. And I was just always so... And then even when I met you, looking back on it, you could think of it as kind of a retrospect on an important life. And and it kind of made sense from the point of view of those first two tracks, but Killing a Little Time always just baffled me in terms of me grappling and trying to find a narrative uh, thread. And then when I remembered, because I had known before, but I forgot like an idiot that it was songs from the musical right. uh, Lazarus, which is also based off the book The Man Who Fell to Earth, hmm. which was made into a movie which starred David Bowie, which back we have the, not watched. Back in the 70s, yeah. So I don't I don't really know anything about that. You don't really know anything about The Man Who Fell to Earth. Other than that, it's about an alien who comes to Earth. The alien looks like a human. Um, I'm only reviewing this as an album without the baggage of the musical or yeah, the book. Yeah, I, I know. We're, we're both doing that. But The Man Who Fell to Earth, David Bowie falls to Earth, alien, looking for water because his planet's out of water and then becomes uh, kind of trapped on Earth and an alcoholic. And that's kind of like the central. He came, you know, from a, a dying a planet that was dying of thirst and became a drunk. That's, Is that a Kendrick Lamar reference? Um, yes. Uh, so I I was gonna do the exact same thing you did and just go track by track because there's yeah, only four tracks and just yeah. kind of examine each uh, each uh, track. So why do you think uh, Lazarus is on this and Black Star? Well, what I would assume is that it has a role to play in the musical because before that, like in my notes, I say I'm not sure. Um, yeah. narratively. Like I said, I mean, it's about the afterlife, but so is his whole album, so I'm not sure, to be honest. I would have to assume it's to do with the musical. I thought I'd just pose that question just because I think it's an interesting one to ask. Yeah. Uh, Just given that if it's written for the musical, I guess he may have put it on the album just because it is unbelievably good. And if it's on the album, I just it's interesting. I would like to know how much control Bowie had, or did he know that this was going to be released? You would assume I've, he does. I thought so. And Maybe I'll do some research as you pour me some more coffee. His um, his wife Iman, uh, and him, you know, from all accounts, loved each other dearly. Yeah, and had a very, very healthy and happy and joyous relationship, which is always good. I can't end Tony Visconti. Right. Those two, Tony Visconti, his lifelong—well, not lifelong, but longtime friend and producer. I find it very, very hard to believe that either of them would seek to profiteer off of his legacy and art so soon after his passing. So I'm wondering if it was planned... Because for the longest time, I thought it was. I thought it was a correlated 
you know, next step, a call from beyond the grave kind of thing from Bowie to his fans. Uh, and, you know, learning that this is all stuff from the musical and whatever kind of puts a kink in that for me. Yeah, sure. In that theory. But uh, Lazarus, we uh, have talked about it on the show, right? We talked about Black Star, right? Because yeah. it was your album of the year last year. Yeah, that's Yeah, you're not wrong. So Lazarus, one of the best songs Bowie's ever written. Yes. One of the best songs to be written in the past two years easily. Oh, know? yeah. Um, so I really don't have much to add on that. It's You'd have to be really weird to hate it or even dislike it. It's just, it's so raw, it's so emotive, it's so impassioned, and it's so beautifully produced and recorded and played by that band. Um, so moving on to No Plan, the track, it's very ethereal, texturally and musically, um, kind of slow, slow motion, uh, jazz odyssey through the afterlife or through Bowie's imagined afterlife uh-huh. and kind of floats around and uh, experiences just a, a creative imagining I think of the afterlife and um, and and kind of outer space imagery coming into it too mm. I think and I like the song once I'm in it but it it is a little slow for me I was interested in how you waxed lyrical on no plan because I didn't I didn't click with it nearly as much as you did. The ending bit when um when uh oh what's his name? Donnie McCaskill comes in with that saxophone bit. Mm-hmm. I'm so on board. But then for the rest of it, I felt like Bowie's vocals were like a little on the long and melodramatic side and um the lyrics are a little on the nose in terms of like what he's trying to say. Yeah, that's fair. Um, it is a great track, but I don't think it's one of the strongest off of this or Black Star. My main thing with it was just that I thought that the instrumentation was so gentle and subtle and subdued, but amazingly still had the scent of scent. weight, sense of weight and. Uh, power almost yep. that is really rarely achieved with songs that are that chill yeah towards the end definitely yeah uh the beginning is maybe like a little more a little i found it like a little too subdued maybe okay um, that's fair like if it had been a couple bpm faster or so i don't know who, who it's not for me to say and i think it's definitely a grower in terms of i'm just removing my socks here yeah so good news um in terms of like, because I, when I first listened to it, especially coming off Lazarus, it yeah. felt like a little bit of a step down. On a brief side note, um, when I was looking up No Plan on YouTube because I left the CD in the car, sorry about that. Um, Thanks. I found like the entire album. I don't know if you found this. I was listening, clicked on it. I was like, this does not sound right. But it has like mostly likes and stuff. Then I realized it was the whole album just sped up like 20 BPM. That's weird. I don't know if you can dodge copyright or, or what. I don't yeah, know. That must be a copyright. It was just holi- like vocals and everything. Weird. So okay. that'll be our next review. Uh, track three, killing a little time. Easily, in my opinion, the best thing to come off of the EP. So good. Apart from, of course, Lazarus, which I think is still did not come off the EP though. Yeah, definitely the superior song though. But 
the two of these songs is totally worth the buy in the case of the EP, in my opinion. It's it comes out like right out of the gate with this like heavy mm-hmm. like old school heavy metal mm-hmm. but kind of like muse style riff with like really distorted guitars and it uh, the first time it came on and I heard it I was like whoa what yeah whoa, whoa, whoa what I was just so shocked at what I was hearing and then it turns into this amazing theatrical dark Sinatra meets Muse yeah rage filled kind of tirade that just kind of like completely took me over and I put it on my workout playlist it's so I was like yeah. that guy was like 70 almost 70 for you know all intents and purposes 68 yeah uh Probably 69 when he died. Or he died right before his 69th birthday. Or he recorded like a year. Anyways, we're um, the rails. But this guy's like 70 and he's rocking hard. Oh, and man. He's, he's more Muse than Muse are now. <laughs> Muse are through. That's not very hard to do. <laughs> I know, but you see what it like. And this that song is just unbelievably good, especially when that chorus comes in. You know? Yeah. Like, man. Really, like, though. It's the hook is there, the rhythm's there, the riff is there. And these, like, these, this is what I'm saying about this band. These guys are jazz musicians. Now, a lot of them, because I've followed uh, a couple of them, namely the drummer Mark Guiliana, since hearing uh, Black Star, I immediately got on social media and, like, followed all of them I could find. And he said that a lot of them started playing music, playing music, uh, as you do from hearing, you know, heavy metal or hard rock or that sort of thing when you're in your teens and yeah. kind of falling in love with the power of it. Uh, and he said that was kind of like their roots. So for that and uh, the heavier stuff on Black Star, Tis a Pity, She Was a Whore, all that sort of thing, they, it was kind of like a back to return to their roots, as it were. Yeah. But man, do they do this well. You would never know that they weren't an exceptional... Um, Neo metal rock you pass me a Kleenex, band. Please. Yes, here. Just right. I'm not gonna throw the box at you this time. So for me, uh, Killing a Little Time is easily the best tune on the album. The only thing is, and this would change, I'm sure, if I saw the uh, the musical. I don't really know what's going on in terms of lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a hundred percent sure what he's trying to say or you know um but i'm sure that would become more apparent if i were familiar with the musical uh now the final song which is do you want me to look look when i met you that's what it's called good job um i kind of agree with you in a sense that it's the weakest on there. Uh, I was reading somewhere and somebody was postulating that it was written to his wife hmm. about when he met her, but also it's for the play. that it, it's, This causes all these issues. Um, I, I think it's better than you do, I think. Um, I think that it's... In some ways, it has more in common with Bowie's kind of like glam rock... Uh, Roots, yeah, you know the Ziggy Stardust phase, with you know that crashing quarter note, uh, drum beat, and all that sort of thing, and the instrumentation is maybe just a little bit more 
on the back foot going through the song in terms of it's not at the front it's not charging and hurling forward like in killing a little time it's got the aggression but it's laid it's leaning back a little bit into that aggression yeah if that makes any sense at all mm-hmm. because it's still a energetic enough song right yeah but it just doesn't have that like right in your face uh fist brandishing fury mm-hmm. that killing a little time does I-, I think it's a good song i think it is probably my least favorite but that's you know not saying much yeah. of it really because i agree it's not this... a bad song by any stretch no yeah my my praise overall of the ep would that be that the songs are all quite different and yeah that's true and all perfectly formed and all beautiful and then my criticism of it would be that they're all quite different and mm-hmm. they're all a little disparate and it's a bit of an uneven listen through um especially when it goes lazarus and then i think goes down a bit for no plan comes way back up for killing a little time interesting and then goes down again for uh, like just listening to it in a car i listen to most of my music in cars while i'm driving uh listening to it while driving it did provide a kind of jagged sensation or a bit of a jarring listening experience going from those songs to really sort of sum up what i think is i feel like the quality of the songs is not at all indicative of what you'd expect from an EP but maybe the connections between them is yeah yeah that said it's it's, so it's not good. it's not b-sides no not at all uh, but it might be leftovers yeah okay next uh, we're going on to Fargo and I can never me- I'm doing this one right I'm going first yeah. on this one yeah. yeah I can never remember or no no I go first do because you we, yeah because otherwise you talk about two things back to back Nobody wants that. You don't have as much time to listen, collect your thoughts. Kevin's meeting me tomorrow. Wow. Should I tell him about our podcast? Yeah. Say listen it's to the Good Ship Brothership. Just this guy from Kijiji. It's by the, the way. only arts podcast that covers film, music, gaming, literature, and uh Tuna Fish. So I think the defining trait of Fargo, far and away, I've watched this movie a couple times now and I thought it before said it before i'll say it again oh hold on times. hold on hold on hold on you can't review it yet we haven't read the wikipedia no. entry for it fargo oh, no, is no, no, a no, no. Ni- i read it because you review it fargo is a 1996 american black comedy crime film there's wow. a wild yeah. handle written produced edited and directed wow by wow and produced too so that means they foot footed the bill for it wrote it edited it, man by joel and ethan cohen Francis McDormand, who is married to one of them, stars as a pregnant Minnesota police chief investigating roadside homicides that ensue after a desperate car salesman hires two criminals to kidnap his wife in order to extort a hefty ransom from his wealthy father-in-law. Wade. Yes. Uh, Fargo premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 96, where Joel Cohen won the festival's... Best Director Award. Award, Best Director... The film was nominated for the Palme d'Or. Um, Palme d'Or, actually. So. 
a critical and commercial success, Fargo received seven Academy Ooh. Award nominations, including Best Picture. Frances McDormand received the Best Actress Oscar, rightfully, and the Coens won the in the Best Original Screenplay category. And it was selected 10 years later in 06 for preservation by the United States National Film Registry for the Library of Congress as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. One of only six films to so designate it in its first year of eligibility. Wow. <laughs> wow. And the American Film Institute named it one of the 100 greatest American films of all time. Wow, I had no idea. So let me start off my uh, review by saying that I love the uh, poster for it. Now, I don't know if this was the like theatrical release poster, but the cover yep. of our DVD. Yep. Oh, yeah, it is too. <laughs> Isn't it though? I just love it. It's Isn't a, it great? It's a needlepoint of one of the scenes from the movie. Like, not one of the That's... shots exactly, but what happens of like a, a man laying face down in a pool of blood with an upturned car in the background. But it's all done in needlepoint with the caption, a homespun murder story. And I even think that kind of goes to capture the... A uh, combination of like whimsy and yet still gravitas that the film has, if that makes sense. Um, I think it's just an exceptionally charming movie and really kind of a must watch if you, for almost anyone, it's not an abrasive movie at all, um, barring a couple mature scenes. I think Frances McDormand is fantastic and the movie would be great with or without her. Without her? <laughs> with or without her? That would be a good one to put You can't at the end. live with or without her. That would be a good one to put at the end. Um, I think the movie would be great without her. <laughs> let's let's okay. keep it on the rails. We're but I think deep she here. might be the defining character in the movie. Um, she feels very grounded and nuanced. She never comes off as weak, but it doesn't seem like we need a strong female character. Better get someone who's really tough. I think without going on a huge rant here, currently in the film industry, there's a lot of talk about and any category games too about needing strong female characters well with wonder woman too yeah. people were like we finally got the first movie with a female character a who's great not female. a maiden oh my goodness yeah it's pathetic a little bit yeah it's an uninformed unintelligent viewpoint but i think people misunderstand what makes a strong character a strong character is not someone who seems not not somebody who goes or a superhero around slapping people yeah. and, you know kicking ass a strong character should be somebody like you or I or any woman out there who seems uh, realistic and courageous and brave and resourceful as I think Frances McDormand's character does and I think the movie's really better off for it and I think this is just a sterling representation of what a strong female lead should look like and I think she's peerless in her performance that said, I think Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare, who are the two kind of villains, are just a hilarious duo. Um, there's this under this undeniable chemistry between the two of them um, that just is often hilarious, but also occasionally tense. They do manage to uh, pull some tension in the film, but primarily they kind of serve as comedic relief there's one scene where they're driving along well i don't think they because they're the two they're the villains yeah I but say, I, I don't think that they're comedic relief at all i said they're okay they occasionally create tense moments but oftentimes they do serve as comedic relief like i think of in one scene when they're traveling by car and this is not a spoiler by the way 
um, Steve Buscemi is going a little stir crazy because Peter Stormare's character is just like a wall of silence, and their interaction about that is just hilarious. Um, I think that William H Macy as uh, Peter, what's his name? Jerry Lundegaard. Um, Maybe slightly the weak link, not extremely, but his performance sometimes comes off as a little blunt or a little wooden, I think, only in light of the awesome performances by basically everyone else. Um, But it's not so noticeable it breaks immersion or anything. I'm just kind of picking nits, as I do. Overall, I think the pacing is fantastic. Um, I don't know if we've talked on the podcast before, but definitely just with the two of us, we've discussed how... uh, Quentin Tarantino tends to really get carried away with the runtime of his movies. Not so with the Coen brothers. The movie is under 100 minutes in length, and I really don't think there's much that could have been cut without hurting the experience, but it doesn't seem rushed, and the characters don't feel underdeveloped for that lack of runtime. Excuse me. Um, The music is sort of a non-event, in my opinion. It didn't stick out as being bad at all or jarring, but it just really didn't stick out at all. And that kind of leaves me with the feeling that although it didn't worsen the movie, it was kind of a missed opportunity because I think there is not a film in existence that wouldn't be improved by a good score. Maybe except for like a silent film. I don't know. I actually silent, feel the silent films have music. It's a misnomer then. I actually feel the same way about the cinematography, which is interesting because I think Coen brothers have had great cinematography in the past. This movie, though, I... What? <laughs> Nothing. This movie, I think, has uh, absolutely functional, adequate, unabrasive, decent cinematography, but I never really stopped and go, wow, like, it's never breathtaking. It's never, you know, it, it never distracts me from the movie, I guess. And you could take that as a good thing, but to me, I like, I like a movie where the shots are not artistic that sounds too harsh to suggest it's not but where it looks like it could be a painting or a fantastic photograph and i think that all the cinematography really does is serve to convey convey the story and you know could be a lot worse uh overall i think the story and the pacing are really really good but the characters are what make this like a in my mind a must watch film they're just fantastic there's also all sorts of side characters who are strong and not overdone, but not underdone. I think of like Wade or the uh, her former like Mike Yamagita. Student. Yeah, Mike Yamagita <laughs> is just like hilarious. That's it's, such a strange, strange. Like scene. seems like a non sequitur, but we, I don't want to spoil that. No, whatsoever. Yeah. Overall, I think I would give the movie somewhere around an eight out of ten, simply because I feel that music and cinematography were totally adequate but kind of missed opportunities and could have formed something greater i can tell you really like the cinematography and i'm not saying it's bad but uh, but it's not fantastic go ahead but well, the movie is fantastic dovetailing off what you said about the cinematography i think you're like <laughs> wildly wrong the film opens with a, this blanket of snow instantly setting the scene a car travels down a road which is set in complete isolated just snow it's just a white scene a road going down 
into the distance, obscured by the haze of the snow, and then a car goes down. We can see by the by the aesthetic of the car roughly what year the film's probably set in. Um, it's a beautifully framed, stark image. There's a moment where Jerry Lundegaard, who's not really the main character, but he is the catalyst for the story. Yeah. Um, there's a moment where he, I believe he finishes trying to pitch some sort of money-making, get-rich-quick scheme to his father-in-law. And then he walks back Wayne. out to his car. And there's this moment, this parking lot viewed from on top. That's a good shot. I'll with, give you that. With little, I think it's light posts uh-huh. sprinkled out. And then his car parked at, an, at a wild angle and just the, his tracks angling in. And it just, it's one of the most perfect shots I That's have a really good ever shot. seen. There's another shot as well where Francis Mc... And these are literally things I'm taking mm-hmm. off the top of my head at, off of what you said. Frances McDormand's character... What, what's her name again? Margie. Margie. Oh, geez, Margie. Her and her husband have mm-hmm. gotten up oh, in the morning. Oh, that's such a He's good shot. He's sitting at the, the... And it's one of those shots where you look at it and you're like, how did they find this house with that's this perfect actually a good shot? One, yeah. You can see her husband sitting in the warm yellow light off to the uh, left there, just up. And then down a little run of stairs, there's the front door, and she opens it to go to the police car uh, to go to work and soft, cold, blue light comes in, and it's this amazing mirroring of the two of them, this weird kind of, like, reversal of the pregnant woman going off to work, and then the man sitting at home. And, uh, to nod to that, he's never really condescended upon. He's a homely, folksy man. No. But that he's never made fun of. That's the one thing I love about the cons, you know? Yeah. They, they are truly... They're not, they're not feminists, they're just equal... In their yeah. casting, they they don't mince. They there's a stupid thing called the Bechdel test. Have you heard about this? No. I'm, I'm gonna back to the so and I understand the premise and fine. It, it works as an exercise, but nothing more. What is it? The Bechdel test is you take it to a film book, anything I guess, and you ask the question: Is there more than one female character? You know, are there two female characters? Do they talk to each other about something that's not a man? Whoa! <laughs> I doubt that came through on the pod on the pod on through the mic. Throat gurgled. I paused with uh, eyebrows raised challengingly, and then my throat gurgled very loudly. Um, so, I mean, that like I understand the premise of that, but it's just ridiculous, and you cannot ever use it to measure the quality of anything, no. anything. Ever. Anyway, going back to that. Cinematography is gorgeous. You can't argue that. And then there's the famous uh, shot shots where Steve Buscemi is doing something. And then he looks one way and you see this cedar post uh, barbed wire fence, like cow fence kind of, extending through the snow into nothingness until it reaches... Until it's so tiny and minute that it disappears. And then he turns and looks the other way. And you see the mirrored shot going all the way down. This amazing shot. Stark, white, almost black and white because of the snow. So I, I will... I think that I think it's unfair to say the cinematography is as astoundingly beautiful as any film ever. But it's the setting in which, in which it takes place. It shows... This setting, which is this small, 
Minnesota Kevin. town. Thanks, Kevin, for emailing my brother in the middle of the podcast. It's a small Minnesota town, right? Yeah. But it's shown with the love and beauty that Los Angeles has shown in Blade Runner. It's think, shown with the same truth and aesthetic-minded uh, craftsmanship. I still stand by that. And to be fair, I didn't say that it was bad. I mm-hmm. said that it didn't astound me. But the one thing I was forgetting was the shot that shows her going from breakfast into her car. When I saw that, I did just marvel. You so must have is... forgotten about him going out to his car, too, and seeing it from the top. The Yeah, that's a good shot, Because that is literally one of my favorite shots in all of cinema. But you history. compare those two shots to... Lock, like the color palette of no, Lock. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, yes, yes. Lock, Lock is a great looking film. The but color it, palette of dude, Lock makes Lock, me want to cry. Lock takes place inside one car, and it's beautiful. Lock, Lock is a great movie, but it has a lot less to show, and it has a lot less to tell because of how low key and small it is. This movie accomplishes more. Because of the increase in scale, but the humbleness of the setting. The, the, the cinematography is as honest and beautiful and unpretentious as the characters or the script themselves are. Yeah, okay, I'll agree with that. And because of that, because of how absolutely <coughs> perfectly it mirrors and matches that, it's perfect for, for this film. And there, it's perfect. Anyway... Uh, another thing you said that I disagreed with. <laughs> anyway, it's just a let, personal I'm, attack. I'm gonna, at this point. yeah, yeah, because I don't like you. Um, I'm actually just gonna jump into mine. So Fargo is a great movie to watch in the summer. Mm-hmm. If you feel hot and you want to feel cold, mm-hmm. watch Fargo. Yeah, it is one of the coldest. You know, obviously. Everybody who knows us knows that we're Canadian. We live in Ontario, and it gets... We had that one person listening from New Zealand. It gets real cold out here in the winter, compared to most places. Anyway, uh, watching this does remind me so much of winter. Yeah. Uh, With um, Jerry Lundegaard, the character, uh, scraping ice off his windshield. um, People with massive hoods over their faces. Not just snow and ice, but slush and frigid water and the grayness. Uh, You know, it really does look like winter around here. Um, And it has a real cold, like, chilling kind of quality to it. Um, And I think the score, which you didn't take particular notice of... I think the score meshes with that in a really beautiful and interesting way and really fuses with not even necessarily the scenes or the characters, but the atmosphere and that atmosphere being winter. Yeah. The the score is the score of winter and you got these droning uh, uh, sections and folk inflected passages and i i quite like the score quite a bit um it it is an easy one to skip over but it too is underplayed like most of the films underplayed i think if you went back and list or watched the film and listened for the score i think you'd be a lot more impressed than 
you'd think. Maybe. And again, I didn't say it was bad. It just didn't. I know you. I know you did. It didn't stick out in my mind again, like the beginning of Drive, when that soundtrack, that Hotline Miami like soundtrack comes in. Maybe yeah. it was just more glam or something. But anyway, the obviously the central tenant of the film is the Coen Brothers. Oh yeah. Who are you know maybe the best film directors working today? They certainly blow the Wachowski twins out of the water um, as a brother pair of film directors. Do they blow out us out of the water as a brother pair? No, absolutely not. No. They don't do a podcast. That's true. And if they did, it would just be them sitting around being really quiet and then finishing each other's sentences. They do do that though. Um, excuse me. Wow. I'm sorry. That so was the Coen brothers, you know. Are amazing directors. They're amazing producers, amazing editors. First and foremost, though, they're amazing writers. Yeah. And the uh, anybody who's seen a Coen Brothers film and known it was the Coen Brothers film and paid attention will know that these guys write dialogue like no one else. Mm-hmm. They absolutely slaughter Tarantino when it comes to dialogue writing. Tarantino's had some great films, but like Mark Kermode, a great film critic, said, everybody in a Tarantino film talks like Tarantino. Yeah. They all have this ridiculous kind of verbiage that they employ, and they all, you know, have a very vaudevillian sense of speech, which is fine, but it's not a versatile thing whatsoever. The Coen brothers really make you believe that these characters are real, and they really give them a life of their own, and they understand what it means to be naturalistic, and they're not afraid to let conversations meander, Mm -hmm. get completely derailed, or run off down uh, bunny bunny trails. What were you going to say? Nothing. I was just rubbing two banana chips together to show you how rich I was. All right. Um, <laughs> I have down here as a note just Marge's meeting with Mike Yamagita is hilarious, yes. and that could be case in point of the amazing dialogue oh, and yeah. how they can make you feel, you know, because Marge, the character, the this pregnant uh, police officer in this little Minnesota back town, is incredibly warm and mm-hmm. incredibly inviting and. You would, she's the sort of person who, I mean, for me, I might not want to sit down and have a coffee with, but if you ran into her at like the grocery store or something, your spirit would be lifted. You'd feel, you know, like you'd been given a very warm hug. Um, And the fact that they can write that and then write something as marrow freezingly awkward as her encounter with a former high school (laughs) friend, like just makes me break out into a cold sweat just I know, thinking about so it because you just believe it right <laughs> like you just yeah. you do this is the thing with especially you know all their films but especially this one you never question mm-hmm. especially when francis mcdormand is inhabiting that role not once do you stop and go well okay, that's a bit of a contrivance or something like mm-hmm. that which is not something you can say for uh, many, many films at all. Um, I think that the character, uh, just hopping around on the characters of Jerry Lundegaard, the catalyst played mm-hmm. by, uh, William H. Macy, I really like him. Huh. He's very unlikable and very yeah. pathetic and very irritating, but really you have much. to stop and go, 
why is he irritating? Is he irritating because he read that a little, a little off color? Or is he irritating because he read that just on color? Yeah. And there's a very fine line there between an actor being irritating because they're not quite nailing it and because they're just dead nailing it. And to know? be fair, I think he's still good. I just think compared to all the other phenomenal characters. he He's the catalyst for the story. Yeah, that's fair. It's not even his job to be a well-informed character. But I really think William uh, Macy did like a really nice job making him just full of nervous energy. Like, you feel stressed just watching him. You feel mm-hmm. your body, like, tensing up as he's in so many different predicaments of his own making mm-hmm. at once. You just feel yourself, like, balling up and, like, your fists clenching as he's trying to, like, get out of the the whole thing with the um, vehicle registration numbers and that whole... You, like, there's... You never... You always... you. You never doubt that he's going to get caught for what he's doing. Yeah. Not even for a split second. And that's not... He's just there for that slow, inevitable slide down into his you know, punishment. And none of that's spoilers, I don't think. It's no. Not. Um, so I think that that character was very nicely done. I think all the characters really... And this is why it's as much of a classic as it is. I think all the characters are very well played. Yes. Um, I think that his um, father-in-law, what's his name again? Wade. Wade, I think he's really... He's like, so good. And again, all he's playing really is a businessman. Yeah. But you never once question whether or not he's a businessman. You just watch him and you watch a businessman. Um, his wife as well, uh, I can't remember her name right now. Probably Helen. If it's not Helen, sure. it should be. Probably not. Probably like Barbara. Yeah. But she's very charming and... Uh, and pleasant, like all the, you know, inhabitants of the town. And, you know, Frances McDormand's character obviously does overshadow them all, you know, and that is the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two criminal characters played by Peter Stormare and, uh... Go on. <laughs> this is bad podcasting. Just no, I know his name. name. What's his name? Steve Buscemi. Thank you, Steve Buscemi. Are a really nice pair. A classic pair, maybe, but a really good That's pair. So good. Although, I think the one reversal there would be normally the crazy guy's the loud guy. Yeah, And true. then the kind of more lily-livered guys that... Well, I guess they're both pretty crazy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Never mind that. But they do make a pair of... And this is a real achievement, too. They are... You, you laugh at them, and then you turn they turn on a dime, and you're uh-huh. terrified by them. And it's kind of... I think it's that ability that the Coen brothers, you know, have to make you laugh at somebody and then run from them that makes um, those characters as compelling as they are and kind of makes the... When they pivot, the whole film pivots. Yeah. From, you know weird quirky dark comedy to thriller you know jet black uh oh my goodness what is happening in this humble little town yeah thriller and that's a really impressive thing to uh see and it it, the the film that whole thing that that versatility is makes it grounded yeah you know because that's how life is Uh um that's a bit of a stretch in terms of just my 
narrative, but whatever. Uh, you know, you guys, you, you and Dad have been watching the TV, the BBC TV show Luther recently, mm-hmm. and I watched it a while ago. Great TV show, really good TV. Show. Yeah, Idris Elba especially, and um, Ruth. Uh, you know, Idris Elba co-produced it. Yeah, and Ruth, uh, I can't remember her name. Me, yeah. me neither. She's also fantastic. Big I'll crush just... on, big crush on both. Of them. Oh yeah. Um, but however, it's got the totally, it's got a wrong view of what grounded is because yeah. they they've got a very far fetched kind of storyline, and then they're like, oh, it's got to be grounded. What do we do? Let's have everybody run through some warehouses for yeah. ten minutes. Can you please stop playing with the table? Thank you. And that is not grounded. That's just a setting. Mm-hmm. Grounded is, do I believe in these characters? Do I think I could run into them at the store? Yeah. You know, this film is as grounded as anything's ever been. And I have written down here, you know, speaking of grounded, um, about just female leads. This is the female lead that, you know, women deserve. Yeah. Uh, and then to be fair... You know, it's not Wonder Woman. It's not about Wonder Woman. No. You know, who cares? People are all, you know, happy about Wonder Woman. Well, what what has... Well, honestly, and I know some people have been inspired by these movies, and that's fine. But Batman, Superman, they haven't done anything for, for me as a man. No. Or for anybody as a man. Because they're just imaginary. Like, they're total flights of fancy. These billionaires or people bitten by radioactive... It's fine if you're somebody who identifies with that and draws inspiration and encouragement from those stories. Uh-huh. People do. Yeah. And there's nothing weird or wrong about that. But that's... It's not a strong male it's or not female... John Coffey from the Green Mile. It's not a strong male or female presence. No. It's just a fictitious, you know, figure. And like I keep saying, that's got its place, but it's not what people want. That's what people think they want. People think they want just a woman and a big budget. That's feminism. Yay. And sure, if that's what you need, sure. But this is a strong female character. It's just a strong character. And it's Mm -hmm. a character, you watch the film and you never go, wow, she's great at this for a woman. Yeah. You just go, wow, she's great. And she's so great. She's so great. She's like compassionate and loving and believable and really strong and courageous. And at the same time, completely human. And if I met Frances McDormand, I would expect her to be this character. Uh That's how good she is. That's how real this character is. And the the whole film totally rests on on her because she is the human embodiment of the whole thing. Yeah. You know, that's fair. Uh, in terms of the characters too like what you were saying a lot of small like cameos that are really nice though you know it's definitely quantity over quality because so many or sorry quality over quality I was so confused I was like what? quality over quantity Uh because so many films too give you these massive backstories or Mm -hmm. like painful exposition scenes you have no idea where her or her husband come from no we have no idea if the baby's boy or girl, what are the circumstances res- uh, uh, surrounding that. Was she not able to conceive before? And the, none of that, you know. She's just We pregnant. get to know these people through just being with them. Mm-hmm. Like real people, you know. And that, 
is also and just through like there's a uh, conversation a great conversation between a police officer and just a a witness that he, he you know called in yeah. to the tip line or whatever and it's just such a folksy hilarious like he finds him yeah? sweeping oh, yeah. sweeping slush with a broom off of his driveway <laughs> which is that just cracks me such up. a it cracks you up but like We've both seen so yeah. many people doing that. Like, I'm sure. I don't even think I noticed it the first time. The um, second time, I just died. Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, but that conversation's so grounded, and it's so just dropping you in. What do they like, look like? Like, like Locke. Yeah. Uh, we need to go back and watch the movie. Then. Yeah. It just drops you in and introduces you to these people, and away we go. Yeah. And you get to know them organically, as much as I hate using that verb. It's valid, though. I think that that's pretty much my yeah. my review. I think that this is a film that you could watch and go, oh, yeah, that was pretty good. But yeah. then you watch it and watch it and watch it. And the more you watch it, the more you realize that there are no flaws. I disagree with no flaws. But it's a, by and large, it's a fantastic there, movie. Maybe no flaws, no missteps. Correct, yeah. I watch it and I go, Yeah. It just makes yeah. sense all the way through. The consistency is baffling. Yeah. There is no, like... There's no but to the movie. Like, it's really good, but... Yeah. It's, there's nothing know, like that. Yeah. It's just... it, uh, And it's baffling. You... Any... Literally anyone would watch it and go, A, Frances McDormand's character. Amazing. Yeah. She's great. And B, I totally believe that. Yeah. My My... The suspension of is it suspension of disbelief. Yeah, suspension of disbelief is complete and utter. Yeah, you know, and that is impressive enough in something like Star Wars, but it's way more impressive when it's people you know. Yeah, so much more impressive when it's people we all know. You know, and yeah. we all know a, a, a Wade, a Wade. We all know William H Macy's character, or somebody who could. You know. Yeah, we all know. Anyway, I, that for me is a real triumph. Did you think about any of that stuff that yeah. I brought up oh, there? Yeah. I just wasn't sure if it was a weird, you know, opinion. Do you know what we're talking about next week? No uh, idea. Should we find out? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. We can always cut this out. Yeah, that's true. So, hmm. It would be nice to do... I really need to get reading as well. Uh, I might drop 1984 for now. I'm not sure. I've you really have to read Fear so and in Las Vegas. I want to read uh, Kite Runner again, so I think we should do Kite Runner. Yeah? yeah. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. You know how you read books like 1984 and you have to like force yourself? Yeah. Or like right now I'm reading As I Lay Dying, which is a good book, but also a, uh, it requires some athleticism. Yeah. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was a book where I had to be like, okay, slow down. I want this to last yeah. for a long time. That's how easy and how funny and how fun it is to read and how desperately you want to keep reading. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, it would be fun to... Uh, Gangs in New York would be quite interesting. Yeah, it would be interesting. Miller's uh, Crossing. Scroll back up quick. What was it? I saw one on there that I thought would be good. Nothing up there, that's for sure. No. Uh, Miller's hmm. Crossing, another Cullen Brothers. It's another Cullen Brothers. We can't do another Cullen Brothers. Uh, so what I was actually thinking is, what if we did uh, Cleopatra that I've been listening to a lot? I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. 
Uh, sure. Is it all online? Oh, yeah. Darn, I should have crossed that out. Why'd you cross that out? We haven't even done it yet. Whoopsie daisy. Yeah, so I think we should do uh, Cleopatra as an album. Okay. And then I think we should do another film. Uh, the House of Small Cubes would be good. But we did... Oh, revisit. Let's do um, the House of Small Cubes. You want really? As like a third thing, and we can do a special episode. I don't know. What do you think? These are long enough. Uh, we could get... Uh, we, we could do papers, please, if you wanted, because that would be short. I'd kind of like to do... I really like doing... Album and film? Album and film. That's a really fun... And plus, for us... No. We're not doing Christian Mingle the movie yet. That's got to be, like, a special. Maybe, like, episode 20? Or something. I don't know. But, like, <laughs> Christian Mingle the movie, we can't just, like... Because ladies and gentlemen, or just gentlemen, or just ladies, or just no one ourselves really we do have christian mingle the movie on our list of things to review as a film in quotes yeah <sighs> well i think that we should do another book soon um but obviously not next time so let's do gangs of new york what do you gang no that's like a three-hour movie so whatever oakley dokley man or we could do Citizen Kane, or we could do There Will Be Blood, drive on Blu-ray. Can we do The Shining? Or we could do The Shining. Let's do The Shining. Okay. You, you know what? I honestly think. What? I honestly think we should watch it tonight. No. Why not? I'm on worship tomorrow. I'm getting up at 7.30 tomorrow. Dude, if you want The Shining to change you, you have to watch it a time like this when you're not ready for it and it's late at night. Like, trust me. But I would also get like the five shine. hours of I sleep. I just wrote The Shine. <laughs> the Shine. But yeah, let's do that. Okay. So, so next week we're talking about... Well, not next week. Next episode. Next which episode. should be up in 10 weeks. Yeah, we missed an episode, but... You know, screw we you. Life we're is not going to talk about that. Yeah, it was mostly because there was a wedding at our house. Yeah, and Jason. I work now. Jason's really lazy, actually. It's just that I use up all my energy for people who pay me. Yeah, well, I pay you with like thank you, money intangible and everlasting. It's intangible because it doesn't exist. It's everlasting because it's spiritual. Well, that's fair. Was I going to highlight? What was the other thing? Ah, <laughs> uh, shoot. Can we, we not do I'm that? sorry. Jeez, Jason. I'm sorry. That was the only one that was like that. So that was the... Uh, I was to, and it was supposed to be an album and a... Oh, Cleopatra. By Le Lumineers. It's... Clepo uh, Trappa. <laughs> I think the kids still listen to it. Uh, maybe. Whoa. Alright, so uh, I think that should be yeah. about it. Uh, next week, Cleopatra by the Lumineers. Next next week, holy Moses. Next episode, episode, Cleopatra by the Lumineers. The Shining is not an album, you absolute Shining geese. by Jack Nicholson. Yes, and Stanley Kubrick. And we'll see you then. Thank, mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're, Polish your potatoes. We want to get a, a few more people listening just so that we can have fun, cute discussions with them. So 
if you're of a mind. That's true. Yeah. Spread it around. Uh, if you know somebody who likes film, music, gaming, literature, and uh, pole vault uh, enthusing painting, uh, let them know. Say hey. There's this bad hey. amateur, amateur podcast I listen to where the guys talk over each other, but they're brothers, and they're okay, and they're kind of funny, and sometimes they are they uh, are adjacent to insightful. Yeah. <sighs> Bye. <laughs>